The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It is 2024, which means we are in an election year, not just an election year, a presidential election year. So buckle up, folks. It's going to be a long one. (laughs) We're recording on Thursday morning, January 11th, and we've got some news to get through. So the primaries are about two months away. And because of that timeline, we have gotten some endorsements this week. The State Employees Association of North Carolina announced that they are endorsing, wait for it, (laughs) Dale Falwell. For governor. Yeah, that's a loyal group of people. They They are are really loyal to that man. Uh, You're right. I admire it. He has been with them through thick and thin. They endorsed him in the treasurer's race. But he doesn't seem to be getting any traction in the polls. Now, Scenic might be turning this thing around. Now, and if they do, if he manages somehow to find victory on March 5th, I am going to give it to Scenic. Additionally, over in Durham, the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People, a very well-established group, They're very influential over in Durham. They made their endorsements this week. Not a lot of surprises at the top of the ticket. Josh Stein for governor. They're definitely backing the winner there in that Democratic primary. And then Rachel Hunt for lieutenant governor. But they did get our attention when they did not endorse the front runner, the presumed front runner, Jeff Jackson for attorney general. They endorsed Satana DeBerry, who is the Durham or has been the Durham DA, and I assume that they must have a good working relationship with her. It could be that, that they have a good working relationship with her, but I also have heard around town that Congressman Jeff Jackson has a difficult time resonating with black voters and black audiences. Now, I've not seen this. This is just what folks are saying. That could be playing into it. He did not show up, I understand, for the screening. That is a sign of disrespect. Uh, when you're seeking an endorsement, you need to show up. Even if you have votes in Congress, you got to figure out a way to get down and talk to folks. So I do have Congressman Jackson as the front runner for that AG's race. But we're talking about a primary on the Democratic side that is not going to have a blockbuster presidential election. So we're not talking about a lot of voter turnout. I think DeBerry has some advantages going into the primary with black voters having an outsized role within the Democratic Party and then combine that with Jackson's inability to really connect to them. You might be looking at a race here. Over in the courts on Wednesday, A judge heard arguments in the state Senate case. So that was the first one that was filed after the redistricting maps were accepted. 
there hasn't been a decision in that case, but it appears that the judge is going to say there's nothing here. Yeah. Yeah. So election will proceed. We're not looking at a threat to an interruption of our primary as we know it. So we got some news this week from the House Republican Caucus Director Stephen Wiley. He has a new venture that he just launched. He announced last week his new consulting firm, Fulcrum NC. Hmm. So he's going to stay on as House Republican Caucus Director, meaning he's pretty much the campaign manager for the House Republican caucus seats. Uh, But this is allowing him, I'm sure, to take on other work as well. Uh, Congratulations to Stephen on that. He has been a guest on the podcast in the past, and we actually need to get him back on and talk about politics here. So speaking of house races, we wanted to start a new segment on the podcast, at least during this election cycle. Well, we're going to have a segment called our Race of the Week. Yeah, let's do it together. Race Race of of the the Week. week. (laughs) Perfect. So here we go. Uh, We're going to go over to Greenville in House District 9. The incumbent over there is Dr. Tim Reeder. He's a freshman legislator. Uh, He's been a guest on the podcast, is finding himself in a primary battle on the Republican side to keep his House seat. His primary challenger is former state Senator Tony Moore, who used to be a Democrat, as I understand, Mm -hmm. and a conservative Democrat, so not surprising that he switched to Republican. Tony Moore served back in 2003, 2004, believe he was a one-termer. He's, you know, dabbled in local politics and has been somewhat of a consistent candidate ever since, sometimes Republican, sometimes Democrat. But he's challenging uh, Representative Reeder. We should point out that this is a rematch from 2022 where Dr. Reeder and Tony Moore faced off in that primary and Dr. Reeder won 58 Now, there's a Democratic primary as well between Linton Brown and Claire Kempner. Uh, Linton Brown has been a candidate in the past, both of Senate, I believe, in uh, the last cycle, and then he ran for the House back in 2020. Uh, Claire Kempner, we've been told, is the front runner on the Democratic side, most likely to be the candidate that emerges there. She calls herself a community activist, and she's very active with Moms Demand Action. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the race between Dr. Reeder and uh, Moore. This is a race where Tony Moore is going to self-fund. Last time he ran, he spent about $150,000, only raised $2,000. He has money to self-fund. Dr. Reeder does not. He's going to run, you know, a campaign that works off community donations. He gets a lot of support from the medical society and the healthcare community. But one of the interesting things about this race is that you, you may remember last cycle, Sky, it was Dr. Reeder versus Brian Farkas, Democrat. Very expensive race, very volatile race. And both candidates spent a lot of money. The district has gotten a little better for Dr. Reeder. It's probably about a Republican plus five, meaning he should win that race by at least five points. Uh, so the race really is coming down to, to Moore versus Reeder. There's already been a little bit of ugliness 
uh, on social media from Tony Moore aimed at Dr. Reader, and it's somewhat of an ironic criticism. Dr. Reader has been involved with the Medical Society for quite some time, which means he worked across the aisle, and the Medical Society had supported the work of Congressman G.K. Butterfield at one point, a a Democrat who served North Carolina in Congress, and uh, Tony Moore actually took aim at Dr. Reeder in the support for a Democrat, which was rich with irony, seeing how Tony Moore was an elected Democrat at one point. But uh, a race to watch in the 9th District in Greenville. Of course, we'll know the results on March 5th. If you have a race that you would like for us to drill down just a little deeper, please drop us a line. Let us know. Give us some background information about that race if you have it, and we will try to share it on a future podcast. We do want to mention that next week, we're going to be in Asheville at UNC Asheville. That's right. We're going to do our second live taping with the Asheville Chamber of Commerce, and we will have Senator Julie Mayfield and Senator Warren Daniel on the pod with us. Yeah, you can get tickets. uh, Go to our social media, LinkedIn, Twitter. You could also see it at the Asheville Chamber of Commerce website. There are are a few tickets left. It will sell out. It sold out last year, and we look forward to seeing you in Asheville as we talk Western North Carolina politics. We got to sit down with Keon Sajati, who is the new executive director of the Democratic Party, someone we didn't know much about but had a really good time talking to. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Keon Sajati, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. To start us off, you are the new executive director of the North Carolina Democratic Party. What does that job entail? Uh, That's a great question. So I am basically the day-to-day manager of our core staff that we have at the party. Um, So I manage the director level folks um, who handle communications data, uh, our digital outreach, our organizing outreach. And um, I'm basically in charge of coordinating all the different departments and making sure that we have kind of a coherent strategic plan uh, going into the 2024 cycle. Uh, I also deal a lot with stakeholders and partners and um, sort of facilitate those conversations and make sure that they have a seat at the table, and um, I, I take a lot of meetings. So <laughs> so I imagine if we had your counterpart over at the Republican Party sitting next to you and asked him the same question, pretty much the same job. I would there. imagine it's, it's very similar over there. I know that the Republicans have kind of a different strategy for, for campaigning, but I would imagine the day-to-day is, is quite similar. You're steeped in politics. You're from Nevada. You've spent some time in Washington, D.C. Can you Give us a little timeline on your career here. Absolutely. So I had kind of a strange path to politics. Um, you know, I originally wanted to go to medical school, and um, I realized sort of towards the end of my college career that that was not the path that I wanted to take. So um, my first job out of college was at a uh, at a marketing company. I did a lot of branding, a lot of messaging, um, ended up moving into more of the web development space and did that for a number of years. And I was always a, I was always interested in the political world. I was a volunteer. I started in college. And um, I think after the 20, 16 election, I kind of realized that I could be doing more than just voting every couple of years. And that's kind of what got me off the sidelines. And um, 
I didn't know anybody that worked in politics. I didn't know that these jobs even existed. And, um, you know, I just was looking around online and I found a found a job and, and was fortunate enough to get a job at the state party in Nevada. Um, so 2018 was my first sort of foray into the political world. And um, right away, like the very first conversation I had with the voter, um, you know, I, I realized that they were not even aware that there was an election coming up. And I, I really, um, and they asked a lot of great questions about who the candidates were, who they should vote. They weren't very politically active. And um, it was in that moment that I realized how much power this type of work can have and how much of a difference you can really make. So kind of got hooked uh, right away. And um, so went through the 2018 cycle. It was it was a great year across the country, great year, year for Nevada. And then um, I was fortunate enough to go back in 2020 um, I was a regional organizing director for um, Vegas and seven other rural counties at about two thirds of the state's population. So big geographic area, a lot of people. Um, we were organizing for the caucus, um, which was a big endeavor. Um, it was basically a volunteer run effort. Um, so we had to do a lot of training, a lot of recruitment, uh, a lot of scheduling folks in to make sure that we had all of our caucus sites covered. And um, then right after the primary, COVID hit. So we had a we had kind of a pre-scheduled break that we just never came back from and uh, had to switch to a completely remote and digital space. So it was a very interesting time to kind of no one had ever tried to do a campaign, you know, from from your home and doing everything online. So we were kind of making the rule book as we were going uh, through the campaign and, and we sort of figured out what worked, what didn't work, um, what resonated with voters. And um, so it was a it was a great experience. And I think that we learned a lot from that cycle. Um, so after Nevada, I kind of wanted to get some experience outside of the state and, uh, I went to New York city to, uh, do a municipal race. I was Mark Levine's field director mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I was looking for something that was different from Nevada and, and I surely did find it. <laughs> um, New York was a very different place. Um, <laughs> campaigns look very different. Our, our campaign structure was completely different. So, uh, I came away from that with just kind of a, a broader picture of how these things are run. And, um, in June of 2021, I started at the DCCC, uh, moved to Washington DC and, um, I was a regional organizing director for what we call the Rocky Mountain region. It was a handful of Western and Midwestern states. I had, you know, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Arizona, Kansas, Nebraska, Montana. Um, so kind of an interesting uh, mix of states. A lot of them I had not worked in before. And I was uh, managing senior level staff, helping them develop their organizing plans, helping them sort of work through staffing issues. And a lot of them were kind of first time managers. So it spent a lot of time coaching, a lot of time just problem solving with folks. Um, and that was uh, being in the committee structure in, at the national level was very interesting and kind of gave me a broader picture about how each of the departments work together. And um, I thought it was a very uh, kind of well-rounded experience. You talked about that first conversation with a voter. What was that conversation like with loved ones when you said, I'm not going to be a doctor, I'm going to go into politics? <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of them were... Um, Surprised? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say disappointed, <laughs> okay, but um, all right. yeah. So, so I had a lot of support, and I, I know that my family knew that I was sort of interested in this for for a very long time, and I think that um, they saw that I was being successful in it, yeah. and I think that helped them kind of get on board. So, um, I would say I was fortunate that I had a lot of support from the family. Um, they're they're thrilled with what I'm doing. Good, so. good. It is a hard life working in politics, though. It's a a journeyman's life in many ways, right? You're living out of a suitcase city to city, state to state, campaign to campaign, it can be a grind. It, it is. It is a grind. I think that um, it is, when I first got into it, I was just kind of expecting that I'd stay in Nevada forever. And I realized yeah. quickly that that's kind of not the option. This this is a, you know, kind of a transient type of work environment. On the flip side, I've gotten to live a lot of places where I never thought I'd be. I never thought I'd find myself here in North Carolina. And uh, I've gotten to do and meet so many different people that I think that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to do so Otherwise, so I think that it's been 
it's been really great and um, it, it can be very difficult and it can be challenging with, with friends and family. And, uh, you know, when I, when I moved here, I had one friend right. <laughs> and, and didn't have a support structure. My whole family is back in the West Coast. So I, um, that part can be a bit of a challenge, but also it's, it's kind of an adventure every day. And I, one of the reasons why I was excited to get out of the sort of, you know, office type of job is because it was very mundane. Every day is the same. And I feel like every day I wake up and I have a, a new adventure and a new challenge and, and new growth opportunities. So it, it really keeps it fresh and kind of helps me push through the, some of the more challenging times. So you have some experience doing political work with the national AFL-CIO. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a state program director at, at AFL-CIO and um, my role there was, uh, it was very much a political type role. I was on the political team and uh, I worked with um, a lot of our in-state partners in a number of states. Uh, Georgia was one of them. So I, I wasn't uh, totally new to the South, but it was sort of uh, looking at this from a different lens. Um, and a lot of it was uh, reaching out to partners in state and uh, finding out who was doing what, where, uh, finding out where the gaps were, and then we could mobilize our members to, uh, to sort of fill those, those gaps. So, um, you know, it was a lot of uh, kind of strategic planning, a lot of doing research, a lot of um, local issues. You know, we did a lot of lobbying in terms of, uh, you know, local sort of bread and butter issues in states. Um, so it was very, it was a very different focus, but I think that uh, it was a similar skill set um, at AFL. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, not necessarily around politics. The labor movement seems to be in a surge right now. Ever since COVID, the quiet resignation, we've seen some major contract negotiations between UPS and the Teamsters. We're seeing uh, the tech industry talking about organizing. Uh, Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. So it's an exciting time for labor. And I think that um, for a lot of years, you know, historically, unions were a big part of people's lives and union jobs were, were really important to making sure that people could have a, a secure retirement and that people could uh, have a living wage and all these things. And for many years, um, labor had kind of been kind of notching downwards and kind of felt like it was being moved to the wayside. So uh, it's very encouraging for me to see a resurgence. <clears throat> and I think that a lot of people have been um, realizing the power they have as as workers and as a as a community, and they're they're really the ones who build success in in companies and organizations. And um, it's been very encouraging for me to see people kind of uh, take take back the reins and really um, fight for themselves and to fight for their coworkers and their families. And um, it's it's an exciting time. I, I imagine this is just the start of it. And um, as somebody who kind of comes from from labor world a bit. Um, I am very encouraged to see it. And I think that, um, you know, uh, in now that we're here in the South, uh, where unions don't traditionally have a strong presence, um, I would like to see kind of a more wide geographic scope and uh, make sure that people have uh, have rights and have health care and uh, have a have a decent retirement and, and can, you know, have a good work life balance, spend time with their friends and family. Did anyone pull you aside before you came here and said, hey, man, you're about to walk into a state that's the lowest union density in the union or one of the lowest and uh, not known for its support of labor unions across the political spectrum? It- yeah. Yeah. No, th- that was something that I definitely looked up. And uh, I-, I was uh, it- it's, you know, you know, I think that each. Each state is different. Each each region of the country is different. And, um, you know, uh, what I found in Georgia, which was, you know, uh, also kind of a low union participation state, is that a lot of people feel like they've got a good job. They feel like they're they're being listened to. And it's um, the conversation often starts with, well, why do I need this? Or what what can you do for me? I, I, I have a retirement. I have, you know, 40 hour work week, all these things. And um, it's a lot about destroying, you know, 
how we can improve things. And there's always, there's always a uh, room to improve. And I think that, um, it's uh, definitely something that was was on my mind, but I, I feel like with the surge that we've seen in support for unions, I, I feel like it's coming here too. So North Carolina is your first foray into Southern politics, is that correct? That's right. Why did you want to come to North Carolina? It's a good question. So I think that um, I'm somebody who's really driven by knowing that my work has value and knowing that I'm really making a difference. And uh, North Carolina really excited me because I think it's a hyper competitive state. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of a big population, um, you know, 100 different counties. And I think that Biden almost won this state last time on a promise. And, you know, now he's got a great record to, to stand on. And I think that um, I saw a real opportunity here to flip a state, um, to send another Democratic governor to the to the mansion and um, to to break the Republican supermajority. And I think that we have a real shot to do it. And um, assuming that we have a, a well-rounded and, and well-run program, um, we can absolutely do it. And uh, I think that's really what excited me about the state. Um, and so that's kind of what brought me here. When you look into North Carolina, is it... Is it something in the political world at the national level where people look at North Carolina and go, wow, there's a lot going on there? And, I, and I, let me put it this way. A lot of our listeners, including the two of us, it's all we think about is how crazy this state is. And I'm wondering how it compares at the national level. That's a, that's a great question. So I, I think that I... The craziness has been something that I stepped into. I, I think that outwardly, from from sort of a national perspective, um, there is not a lot of uh, y'all y'all put yourself together well. The, the craziness does not uh, translate to the national scene. So I think that that's um, uh, that's good. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that. Um, a lot of times people just look at the numbers, they look at the margins, they see how close these elections are here, and that's really what they focus on. Um, so I think that the fact that it's been so close, the fact that we have, um, you know, a, a Republican slate that they're going to put up that's a little uh, extreme, I would mm-hmm. say, and and kind of a um, really is, is could not be more different than the slate that we're going to put forward. I think that it brings a lot of attention to the state and, and shows people that, um, you know, the presidential obviously matters, but a lot of these statewide offices matter as well. And I think that um, with Anderson coming in as chair, um, it certainly brought a lot of eyes on North Carolina and showed a lot of people that a young person can can take over a state party and be successful at it. And I think that um, that attention that the state has gotten is really going to benefit uh, us going forward. Yeah, let's talk about the chairwoman, Anderson Clayton. We see her everywhere. She's on podcasts. She's at the you know, national level. I'm asking the question because I think a lot of folks get confused. The chair is the person in charge of the party. But she's more of the external face. It is the executive director and your staff that is putting into motion what she wants. That's yeah. right. So, so she's kind of the the figurehead and, and sort of has the the broad vision about um, where the state is going and and um, you know has a lot of new fresh ideas that I think are, are very welcome here. Um, but in terms of implementing that, that's really my responsibility and the responsibility of the staff um, to make sure that we are sort of putting those ideas into a. Um, into a structure where it's actually possible to do. And I think that it is very possible. Um, So we have been developing a lot of systems and and structures internally. Um, I am somebody who really enjoys coaching and I I, uh, encourage my staff to be, you know, thought partners to push back on things that aren't working. And um, I, I sort of view myself in a lot of ways as an advocate for the team and making sure that we're providing them with the resources they need to be successful. But in terms of the day to day, making sure that the, the vision gets turned into a reality um, that, that definitely is my job. And you're accountable to her 
for your performance as your staff is to you. And then she's accountable to that executive board. That's how it works. That's exactly right. So you mentioned Anderson being young, but you're fairly young to be um, an executive director and in a state that the Democratic Party traditionally has had older figureheads here and on a national level. How has that transition been for you? Um, yeah, so I, I feel like I did have kind of a, a quick path here, which, which you know, I'm thankful for. But um, I think that there are young people need to feel connected to these types of things. And I think having both myself and Anderson in these leadership positions, it kind of shows young people that they have a seat at the table, um, that there's a new generation of leaders in charge. And I think that there's a lot of room to try new things. And I think that um, the the youth are really the future of this country. And I think that when people see people that look like them, people that sound like them, people that have experienced the same things that they have in their lives, it really helps us connect with young voters. And it really helps us, um, you know, be, be really innovative. I, I think that a lot of the younger staffers in the political space are very willing to try new things and, and willing to sort of see what works and see what doesn't. And I think that that's, that's really good and it's exciting. And I'm somebody who really encourages people to do that. And uh, I have certainly, uh, you know, tried and, and failed and succeeded in, in many different things. But I think that um, that willingness to do things differently and not just work off of the same playbook that we've always used is, is very exciting. So I think that it's um, hopefully something that resonates with, with voters and, and they can get excited as well. But, um, you know, uh, Anderson taking over and being the youngest state party chair in the country is another reason that really brought me here. I was kind of inspired by her story and, um, you know, I just, uh, was really excited to get to implement her vision. One message that she seems to have in her public appearances is the Democratic Party has conceded rural North Carolina to the Republican Party that the strategy in the last few elections has been just drive up that urban vote, drive up that even that suburban vote, and just hope that it gets you over the finish line. And we've had some squeaky elections in this state. Roy Cooper, Josh Stein, Biden versus Trump. That's something you agree with. You're nodding over here. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. It's been a, it's been sort of a pattern uh, of Democratic campaigns where they tend to focus on the big population centers where more voters live. I think a lot of times it's a question of resources. You have to pay staff. You have to pay for mailers, pay for ads and all these things. And it's more efficient um, to focus on the areas where you can talk to as many voters as possible. I think as a result, um, we Democrats tend to not go out into these rural communities. And, and as you said, we've kind of ceded ground to the Republicans and, and a lot of these places um, I'm amazed when I do outreach to some of the rural communities where people are like, no one's ever called me or no one's called me for years. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's kind of a, a failure. And, and I think that um, especially with the big national campaigns that come in and, it, you know, it's a numbers game. It's about um, just turning out as many people as possible. They tend to just focus on the population centers. But um, we like you said, there's there's this nail biter elections here in the state that are incredibly close. And I think that if we're going to win this thing, we need to squeeze out every vote from every corner of the state. Um, I think that we are starting early and we have an opportunity to really make sure that rural folks in the community, rural communities of color, um, feel like they have a seat at the table and are really a part of the planning process as we develop our strategic plan for 2024. And, um, you know, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes trust building, it takes, um, you know, some, some fence mending. I think that uh, a lot of people in the rurals kind of feel left out and they feel left behind and, and quite frankly, Rightfully so. There's another realignment, and that is the blue-collar voter out there. Some have felt that the Republican Party has made a surge at trying to get blue-collar workers into their party. Democrats have always relied on blue-collar workers, but maybe there's been some concession to the Republicans of the blue-collar workers. You got a thought about that 
possible realignment? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that we've certainly felt it as well that we're sort of, um, we've lost some ground with some of our, our blue collar folks that we've, you know, counted on for their support for many, many years. And I think that, um, I think that there's a couple of different aspects to that. I think that um, Democrats are often not good at highlighting our wins and our successes. I think the Republicans are very good at branding. They're very good at messaging. They're very good at driving the narrative. You know, Democrats, we pass meaningful legislation. We're very technical. We're very you know, by the books. And um, sometimes that doesn't translate well to your average voter who doesn't just pay attention to the news every day and, and is, you know, you know, kind of lives in the political realm. Um, so I think that we have a lot of work to do about tailoring our message that will really connect with working voters and um, listening and, and hearing what issues affect people. And people are experiencing a lot of things that are very personal to them. A lot of people are feeling you know, like their their dollar isn't going as far as it used to and and that, you know, they're not getting the health care that they deserve. And, you know, healthcare centers are closing all over the country. And um, Democrats have really tried to improve on these things and really tried to make a real difference. But I think that we could do better in terms of selling those successes and really highlighting the actual tangible things that we've done that have changed people's lives. And um, in the union world, everyone kind of you know, wants to wants to organize their workplace for different reasons. And, and you know, we, we aren't able to go in with kind of a one size cookie cutter solution. And it takes a lot of time listening to each individual worker, um, finding out what motivates them, what, you know, they would like to see out of a, a collective bargaining agreement and things like that. So I think that that's something that can definitely translate more into the democratic space, um, spending a lot of time listening, tailoring messaging, and um, just hearing what are affecting people in their daily lives and, and how we can, you know, pass meaningful legislation to improve that. The God gaze and guns issue. That's where Republicans have found success, right? In those three issues mm-hmm. versus the economics. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think some of these um, uh, more, I don't want to call them culture war issues, but some of these things are very personal to a lot of folks as well. And um, the Republicans have a uh, a well-crafted playbook in terms of sort of playing on people's emotions and, and making people feel scared and making people feel like the things that they feel strongly about, the, the way that they grew up is is um, under attack. I, I think on a lot of these issues, Democrats can do a better job of connecting with people in a more personal way and, and just recognizing that this is a real issue for a lot of people that's top of mind. And I think that um, there are definitely a lot of opportunities for us to do better, especially in, in the South here, where a lot of these are top of mind for many folks. What's something that gives you hope about the future of the party in North Carolina or the future generation of voters in North Carolina? A lot of things give me hope. We're starting fresh in a lot of ways this cycle. And I think that, um, you know, the entire leadership of the party is 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 new. It's very young. It's very, um, we've got people from all over the country. They're very talented. I, I Anytime you step into a new team that's sort of like partially built when they get a new leader, you never know how folks are going to react. But I've been just absolutely blown away with how skilled and how diligent and how self-starting this team is. Um, they have very creative ideas. They're willing to try new things. And I think that um, seeing these new things get put into action is very exciting for me. And I think it's going to really resonate with voters. Um, And in terms of just, you know, demographic changes, um, this new generation that's coming up, I think that they align much more closely with the democratic values. And I think that, um, I think time is on our side, certainly. Um, You know, we have, uh, you know, I'm obviously focused on this election, but um, I think that one of my gauges for success in, in any political campaign that I've been a part of is kind of what you leave behind and how you're setting up the future of the state for success. So I am uh, looking for a victory in 24, but I think that also we have a great opportunity to really create a, a really professional and really well-run party that's going to benefit Democrats here in the state for, for many cycles to come. You know, we've had 
campaign leaders come through, whether they're consultants or they're on staff, they come into the state and they fall in love with North Carolina and they end up staying and making a career here. What are you liking about North Carolina so far? I'm not asking you to commit to living <laughs> here forever, but uh, what's what's been the charm here so far for you? I think a lot of things. So I've been here for about, what, five weeks or so. Um, so I'm still very new. I'm still sort of getting my feet wet here. But, um, you know, I, I think that the Southern hospitality is real, uh, you know, coming from coming from the West, coming from D.C., where people aren't always as, as nice and as, as kind as they are here. I've been um, just blown away with how open people were. Um, I think one of the other worries that I had coming in is like, I'm not from the state. You know, how are people going to deal with an, an outsider coming in and taking over? And um, I have just been just blown away with how welcoming everyone has been. I've had a lot of great candid conversations with people. They've been very open about what's worked, what hasn't worked in previous cycles. So I feel like I've been given kind of the crash course into the political landscape here. And, um, you know, this is a beautiful place. I mean, there's just wildlife everywhere. I feel like the um, we are, you know, in a, in a city center, of course, but we're, we're very close to nature. I, I used to, in, in Las Vegas, I always like to get out of the city and go mm-hmm. hiking, get up into the mountains. And um, I, I just feel like there's, there's a lot of beauty here. There's a lot of wonderful people. And there's um, just seems like a lot of opportunities. I noticed you use the word y'all in this conversation already. Did you come with that word or have you picked that up in the last five weeks? I have picked it up. You know? Okay, I think, good. Uh, yes. It's so. a very inclusive It's easier word. to say, isn't it? it? It's easier to say. It's very inclusive. Uh, it's a good one. I think I'm going to keep it. Yeah, well, <laughs> take it to other places. Exactly. Right? What's something that you're watching for in 2024 that maybe other people aren't aware of? That's a good question. Um, I think that I'm watching the other side a lot um, to see what the Republicans are doing, what they're saying, who they're going to be putting forward. I think that um, what's important for me, uh, kind of recognizing that Democrats aren't always the, the best messengers and aren't always the best at um, resonating with with your average voter. Um, I think that the Republicans are going to put forward a slate of candidate that is very disconnected from your average voter. Um, that's very extreme. That's very... Um, disconnected from from the people and i think that um looking for opportunities where we can draw a contrast and really give people a solid dichotomy in terms of their choice is going to be a really powerful thing for us so uh keeping an eye on the republicans seeing what they're doing keeping an eye on fundraising numbers um and then i think also uh you know this is a presidential year and the biden team is going to come in in a big way the state party has a real opportunity in the next, you know, four or five months or so um, to set ourselves up for success and make sure that when we really get into the thick of these uh, conversations with them, that we are negotiating a good deal for the state, uh, making sure that they are mindful of our sort of priorities here and, and seeing how those align with the team. So those are the two things that are really on my radar. It's just making sure that we are focusing on getting as good of a coordinated deal from the Biden team as we can and um, that we're bringing in as much investment as possible for the state. With a March 5th primary, you mentioned the presidential election. One thing that I, I really envy about your job and your counterpart's job over at the Republican Party is you guys get an up close view of these candidates as they come in. And I imagine you know, we're going to start seeing that very soon as the primary season kicks off and North Carolina being such an early state. It must be something that you're excited about. It is something that I'm excited about. I think that it, uh, like you said, it, it kind of like, I, I view primaries as kind of like a little mini general election, and it really gives you a good sense of both your candidates, what their strengths are, and also what the other side is going to do. And um, so I, I think it is very exciting. And also, um, it, it's quite early. I've worked in a lot of states that have August primaries and things like this, where you don't get a lot of runway post 
primary to, to sort of refocus on the general. So um, I, uh, I'm excited to sort of get through primary season. And um, <clears throat> also it gives us an opportunity to test a lot of our systems and structures of the party. Um, so we have, you know, we have a, a voter protection team and we've got our organizing team and, and comms and everything. And um, the having a, a real election where people are actually out there voting gives us a, a chance to really test our system, see what works, see what doesn't. Um, and it gives us enough runway to make adjustments as needed um, and, and to sort of identify some pain points, seeing where the staff staff could use additional coaching and additional, you know, guidance. Um, so it's an exciting time. And I think that, uh, you know, we are as a state party, we're, we're kind of staying out of it. Uh, we're not endorsing any candidates for the primary, which I think is good. But it's a good opportunity for us to just kind of see um, how the voters are feeling. Also, there's been some changes to, you know, we've got these uh, voter ID laws now, and there's going to be some new intricacies for voting. So I think it'll help us sort of suss out where the pain points are going to be and what we should be preparing for for the general. We'll start to see, at least on the Republican side, where there is a contentious primary, we're going to see candidates rolling through here. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. I, I would imagine that there's going to be a lot of uh, attention on the Republican side in terms of their primary. Um, I think the conventional wisdom is that you know, Trump is going to run away with this thing, um, obviously not participating in the debates. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a, we're going to get a lot of, a lot of attention, a lot of traffic from the candidates. Morgan Jackson says that no one motivates Republicans to get out to vote like former President Donald Trump. He also says no one motivates Democrats to get out to vote like former President Donald Trump. That must be something you're thinking about when you're doing the X's and O's back at the headquarters. Absolutely. I, I think that um, I think he, he's exactly right. I think that a, he's an exciting candidate for Republicans and also um, gives the Democrats something to vote against in a lot of ways. And I think that um, Republican voters tend to be very self-motivated. Um, on the Democratic side, we do a lot of turnout. We do a lot of, um, you know, outreach to voters to make sure that they're actually coming out to cast their vote. And um, I think that Trump gets a lot of people off of the sidelines. I think that they see the damage that was done during his years as president. Um, they look at the Supreme Court and they see that um, these elections really have real consequences for people's lives that can have lasting damage on the country. So uh, Trump is a, a big motivator for us both. I think uh, Morgan is exactly right. Our politics are incredibly divided today. If you had a magic wand and you could change something in our politics, what would it be? In my time sort of being involved in the political space, I've seen the amount of vitriol has really increased. And I feel like the difference between the two sides has gotten more and more. And I think that we've lost a lot of the candor and a lot of the professionalism. I think that it's... Um, it seems, at least outwardly, that um, the two sides don't work well together. And it's very rare to see bipartisan legislation anymore. And every once in a while, we'll get surprised. But um, it used to be the norm. And uh, it used to be, you know, there'd be good ideas on both sides. And um, it seems like both camps have kind of entrenched themselves in, in, uh, in, in a lot of the extremes. And I think that um, I would like to see us move a lot more towards the center. I would like to see more willingness to compromise and more willingness to sort of come together to the table and, and find good ideas from both sides. And I think that, um, you know, the, the fact that we have this robust democracy here is, is really what produces a lot of the good ideas and, and what's make the, what makes this country great. And I think that um, I would like to see, you know, us, us come together and compromise and to have um, sort of a more unified uh, political structure overall. You don't hear that a lot from a political consultant. I hear you, man. Well, Keon Sajati, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics. You coming to North Carolina, you certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. So we're inside two months of the primary. And as we get into the campaign season, we're going to have guests on the show that come from the political side, campaign managers, caucus directors, uh, staffers that work inside politics, not only because we want to learn more about them and what makes them tick, but also we want to really give you a, a, a good understanding of how campaigns work from the inside perspective. And one of the things I really love about campaign managers, political directors, is that, this is going to sound ironic, they're not the most political people in the world. You know, they they certainly have their partisan bent, right? They're conservative, they're liberal, Democrat, Republican. But one of the things I really love talking to political operatives is because they'll kind of give it to you straight. Like Keon says in this interview, like, yeah, we're really not good at messaging to this group of folks. And Republicans really are good at messaging. That's something you don't hear a lot from activists. But usually political operatives will give it to you pretty straight. And I find it interesting. Thank you, Keon, for being on the podcast. We really enjoyed our conversation. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Liquidity, It's at Lit Capital on Twitter, or X, and this is the 2024 nine-day summary. Bass Pro Shop Guy, Nevada Dude Assaulting Judge, Bill Ackman versus Business Insider, Elon Musk versus Mark Cuban, Jewish Tunnels in New York City, Boeing Plane Malfunction, Aliens in Miami, (laughs) Jersey Jerry Hole-in-One, Aaron Rodgers versus Jimmy Kimmel, and you sent me that someone quote tweeted it and said, any 2024 list without the drunk guy who got stuck in an urn is incomplete. Yeah. So it's been a week, y'all. Yeah, haven't even gotten to Martin Luther King holiday, but we've got a lot of craziness in 2024. I mean, who among us hasn't gone to a Bass Pro, a Bass Pro shop and wanted to swim? <laughs> that water must have been really cold, according to that video. I mean, good gracious. I mean... Any kid age <laughs> four to ten sees a body of water, if it's a fountain or something, you want to jump in. I think about that when I'm at the General Assembly sometimes. I think, what if that person just falls in? Or... I've seen it happen. <laughs> I'm surprised we don't see more of it. My Roman Empire right now is that Boeing plane mm-hmm. and the door coming off or whatever and nobody was sitting in those seats. I mean, <laughs> when is nobody sitting in the seats with extra leg room? I know. Is, pe- it seems like a conspiracy. Uh-huh. Those people are long gone. They were blown right out of that no, plane. No, nobody was assigned to those seats. What are the chances of that? 
No, they're, they were assigned. They're just gone. This is a cover-up. I'm telling you. There were people in those seats. Or they knew it was going to fly off. It was so? just a little experiment to see how people would react. <laughs> you're obsessed with be telling them you're willing to sit in the exit row. Uh-huh. I love telling a flight attendant that. I'm, w- I'm here to help you. I would have been in those seats just right out. <laughs> I was texting you when I was on the plane from Puerto Rico. I really have a hard time telling the person next to me that I have to go to the bathroom. I feel like I am so weak in that I have to go to the bathroom three or four times during Three or four times is too many times. It is. You can't hold it? I can't. I gotta... If I feel the slightest discomfort, I've gotta go relieve myself. See, that's funny because anytime (laughs) we have an obligation, if it's one o'clock and we have to get on a Zoom at one (laughs) o'clock, one o'clock hits, you have to use the bathroom. So you held it until that moment when you knew we were gonna have to begin to do something else. So you are okay with holding it. I'm not okay. I want to use the bathroom because I realize we're about to get on a Zoom. That Zoom could last an hour. You were on a Zoom last week that lasted, what, five hours? (laughs) You guys were doing introduction icebreakers for five hours? The icebreakers lasted over an hour, yeah. Wow. It was a dark day for me. (laughs) Icebreakers shouldn't take an hour. No. Meetings shouldn't take an hour. I think all Zoom meetings should end at like 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. So if you've sh- ever been in one of my trainings, I will I will be done. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to the dermatologist today. Yes, you are. I went swimming this morning. Have I mentioned that I get up real early and go swimming? <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's the beginning of a year. <laughs> A new year. <laughs> Yesterday, Brian was wearing running shoes, <laughs> Asics pants. <laughs> Who even knew that Asics made pants? <laughs> a sweatshirt. And it was like, I was like, this is the embodiment of a man trying to get fit in New Year. Like, that's the outfit they just give all of you. <laughs> yeah, when I signed up for Lose It, the app, I suddenly started getting ads for like, The uniform of the white man who wants to get in shape. And that was it. Yeah. Asics pants, hoodie, and Asics tennis shoes. So all week he's been intolerable about getting up (laughs) and just keeps going on and on about it. And it's like, you could do it and not tell everybody. Yeah. Well, I did get up this morning and I went to swim. As I got in the water, you know, I'm doing, I'm looking at my arm And I see this god-awful mole that seems to have changed since the last time I looked at my arm. Yeah. And I was... If you'd like a photo, Brian has many that he sent me this morning. (laughs) Very alarmed by it. So I got to work. Now, Julie says I'm okay. She says I'm going to die, but I'm not going to die of this. So... uh, That seems accurate. And you said I'm going to die. I did not say that, no. Okay. Uh, anyway, I called the dermatology place and they said, yeah, you can see Gary today at 3.30. Now, listen, <laughs> I think I'm all... First of all, first of all, I want to say I was there when you called the dermatology office. Like this woman who's a receptionist answers Valerie. the phone. Hello. Brian's like, hello. I'm afraid I'm going to die because I you, you gave her this long story. Instead of saying, hi, I'm calling to make an appointment. Uh-huh. Oh, Okay. No, you gave her this whole thing, and you're like, my wife doesn't care about me. She doesn't care. 
<laughs> Why give all of this information? I just said to my someone? wife was nonchalant about it. No, you said she doesn't care. Well, you've got to say certain words to get an appointment. You just call and say, I need an appointment. And I've, if they say, okay, what for? Then you just say, I need a mole removed. I've called dermatologists before and they're like, it'll take six months to get you in. I mean, I'll be dead, cold, and Julie will be remarried by the time that appointment comes around. I, you have to say words like, I feel I'm going to die. And that's when you get an appointment with Gary. Well, Gary as is someone there. who doesn't even use healthcare, you don't. And I heard, what was her name? Valerie say on the phone, you haven't been here in years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't believe your stories. I'm not a very good consumer of healthcare, except when I feel like I'm, death is pending. Okay. And death feels like it's pending. So I'm going to see Gary at 3.30. By the way, Gary is a physician's assistant. I don't know why we call doctors doctors and then Gary just as Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I would like for physicians assistants to, it's a lot, to have something else. I don't know why. I mean, who, I know a Gary. It's Nation Han's friend, <laughs> Gary. And Gary, Gary, What's it, local oyster. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking Gary. I know Gary. Gary's been to the office, hanging out with waxed Nation. his nose hairs. Yes, <laughs> we waxed his nose hairs. I'm thinking I'm going to see Gary. I just wish we. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to die, and I wish Gary had more of a title. Is what I'm saying. How much experience does one need to take a mole off your arm? I don't know. Remember when Dr. Murphy told us that he was driving down the road and saw a suspicious mole? Representative Greg Murphy, who's now in Congress, and he says he went back to his office and cut off his own mole. Hmm. That's a man's man right there. <laughs> Dr. Greg Murphy. He's a urologist. Mm -hmm. Phew. Might be able to help you with that peeing on the plane <laughs> problem. <laughs> Thank you, Sky. You're welcome. How was your trip? <laughs> I loved it. Puerto Rico is a wonderful place. Yeah, Dennis from security is from there. Uh, that's right. You guys speak Spanish. Uh, no, that's Ray. Oh. God, you're so stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love all the security people. <laughs> you don't Mike. know anybody's names. <laughs> um, yeah, go past Mike now. <laughs> Mike, uh, who's peace and blessings? <laughs> who's peace and I'm not going to tell you. Get it on your own. Russell. Russell's peace and blessings. Uh, let's talk about Puerto Rico. It's a wonderful territory at the risk of sounding offensive it's like america you have a beach house island and you can go to this island you don't need a passport the people are very inviting bring your american dollars they take dollars you can use your cell phone down there no extra cost infrastructure wonderful beaches wonderful food a little bit on the cheap to be honest with you compared to like new orleans or new york we had a wonderful time we were there four or five days and uh, 85 degree weather. The only glitch is that it's a major port for the cruises. So when we took a food tour on our first full day there, four ships were in port. 80,000 people coming off of these, off of this cruise ship in the little, uh, motorized scooters, <laughs> honking at people, uh, you know, it, basically Americans looking for a cheeseburger and the opportunity to talk to other Americans and in port. That was the only thing that was a little glitchy. 
So your stance is that you hate cruise ship people? <laughs> I don't hate cruise ship people because I know we have some listeners that love cruises. I'm just saying the cruise ship people can be a little annoying. Okay. You know, like they, they're the ones that go in and buy those little shot glasses that say Puerto Rico. Not a real traveler like you. Yeah. Getting entrenched in culture. <laughs> <laughs> but while you say, it's just like America. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. You're better than them. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. It was, but it's great. It's a wonderful, wonderful San Juan, old San Juan, beautiful city. And uh, a lot of history there, a lot of American history, a lot of Cold War history. Because, you know, Puerto Rico was strategic for us. It feels us. you're overcorrecting by trying to tell me about how much you learned. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back. I want to go back. Go surf it. The surf was so great, Sky. Huge waves, but they were easy waves. Great. All right, but over the holiday, uh, you had a good time at the inaugural... Pop-Tarts Bowl. <laughs> you know, we all saw the video, and then we saw the memes and the gifts yes. and everything. When the Pop-Tart is lowering himself into the toaster. He's got the sign, dreams come true. He throws the sign out. Did you know at that moment that you were witnessing an iconic moment in American history here, pop culture? No, but I have to say, like, I loved everything about, that was my first bowl game. I loved everything about it. And that moment you just described Pop-Tart mascot holding that sign, dreams do come true while being lowered into his death to be eaten alive. It's one of the darkest moments we've ever experienced. But it was a moment, though, right, that just captured all of us. Everyone was bought into the Pop-Tart after that. In fact, I have to admit something. What? Julie and I went to the grocery store and bought three boxes of Pop-Tarts to eat Pop-Tarts. It did make me wonder how their sales were. Yeah. Over the next week or whatever. Yeah, we loved every moment of it. It yeah. was so good. And it, a damper because NC State did not prevail. Yeah. But but still, and you know, I'm not exactly... A lot of good Midwesterners there from Kansas. I'm not very supportive of, of college football. Yeah, we've heard many times we don't need to do this again. Yeah, yeah, but I will say the Pop-Tarts Bowl was everything. And then it appeared that the Cheez-Its Bowl... Just like they watched film of the Pop-Tarts Bowl and they're like, whatever they're doing, we're going to do that too. Like sad marketing strategy. They are just copycats. I saw the same with the Kellogg's Tony the Tiger Bowl, I think it is. Yeah. Why didn't they, why did they call it Tony the Tiger instead of Kellogg's? Yeah. Frosted Flakes. Right. But that Tony the Tiger, everything seemed to be, you're right, a, a very weak version of the beauty of self-sacrifice that Pop-Tarts gave us. Yeah. All right. Welcome into 2024 with us. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, maybe a resolution for you this year would be to leave us a review and show us a little bit of support, five stars, something like that. I don't know. We will be back with you next week. Until then, please remember to do politics better.